I'm Dr. Jessica Metcalf, and this is the dark side of dentistry, the shit no one talks about. I'm a life and business coach and a dentist to oncology patients. I teach high achievers, that's you, how to break through self-doubt, fear of failure, and overworking so dentistry and your life doesn't have to suck. This episode is a little bit different. I myself get interviewed by Dr. Ken Sirota. He is an endodontist in Toronto, Ontario, has been selected for fellowship in the Pierre Fouchaud Academy and Academy of Dentistry. He's a global clinical director of Dentaltown.com and runs the Facebook group Nexus, which is an international dental group for over 30,000 members. Ken had me on his podcast slash live and has kindly given me the opportunity to share my interview on my podcast. So this is bonus episode 11 for season one of the dark side of dentistry, the shit no one talks about. This is the second time Ken and I are speaking. The first time was about two years ago at the beginning of the pandemic. I had just started sharing more about imposter syndrome, perfectionism, and burnout. We are now two years later and I practice clinical dentistry two days a week and coach and speak on a full-time basis. I've switched from clinical dentistry to full-time coaching as this is where my heart lies. Eventually, I'll be stepping away from clinical dentistry altogether. So without going into too much more and giving a whole bunch away, here I am, Jessica Metcalf, sharing my story and my thoughts about self-doubt, perfectionism, vulnerability, and mental health within the dental community. You were a Toronto-based dentist. You um, you were actually a general dentist to the oncology patients at uh, Princess Margaret Hospital, correct? Yes. Um, you're 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 a famous LinkedIn personality. You are a LinkedIn influencer, a very <laughs> dynamic presence on LinkedIn. Um, you. You call yourself, okay, I'm curious. This is the sign back here, if I assume, I guess you can see the point. That's a sign for alchemy. Why the alchemist dentist? Where did that come from? So twofold, uh, the alchemist or alchemy in general is the transformation of a base metal to gold. And what I value immensely is our mind, our brain. And if we can take control over that, that to me is gold. Now, another form of alchemy is taking something from ordinary and turning it to something extraordinary. And that's what I love to be a part of, our individuals' journeys and how to get them to a space that they are truly happy in, that they want to be in. So that's how the alchemist dentist came into fruition. So, but you're you're a certified life coach. So I, I don't want to delve too deeply, although you're quite honest about it. You went through your own travail, right? You you discuss it openly. You hit bottom, not just once, but a couple of times. Yeah. And you know the mere fact that you can open up about that is pretty amazing because most people keep that very close to their chest. Um, so you've turned it into being an international speaker uh, and a very passionate educator. You've got. Uh, webinars going on, you do life coaching, you do seminars, and you also do podcasts now. So you're living, you know, you're walking the walk and talking the talk, right? That's basically what it is. So you were practicing in dentistry, you were working at the oncology department of Princess Margaret. So, and things went awry. How did this become a catalyst for what you're doing now? So a few years ago, I'll summarize what you had touched on is I was in my deepest, darkest abyss and I couldn't see a way out. 
and I was wishing away the next 25, 30 years of my career. And I thought that that was it. I thought I just needed to just muster through, get to retirement, and then one day I would wake up feeling happy. And everyone around me, without me sharing at that time, because I didn't feel comfortable sharing, said, oh, things get better, things get better. Just wait, things get better. And I kept waiting for something to get better, except nothing was changing. And what I now look back and recognize is that the people who told me things get better without offering solutions just got used to the shittiness that was happening around them. And I didn't realize at the time was that I couldn't keep living like that. And so when I was officially diagnosed, I was diagnosed with clinical depression, a generalized anxiety disorder, and was experiencing my third burnout. And at the time I didn't realize it was burnout or depression because I have a family history of mental illness and I saw it in a different light. And so I thought, I'm this high achiever, I'm functional, I'm going in, I'm working six, seven days a week, I'm involved in organized dentistry, I'm doing all of the things, so I must be fine. Except I wasn't. Mm -hmm. I was sitting like a blob in front of the TV and the TV was watching me. I would come home and tell myself I deserved that glass of wine. And that wasn't living. No. And so when I started to get the help that I needed and I started to make the changes, which took time, right? Mm -hmm. There's no magic pill, there's no quick fix. I started to realize that, okay, I need to talk about this because I'm now a statistic. And when I was 14 and I became, and when I decided I wanted to become a dentist, everyone around me would always say, don't dentists have one of the highest suicide rates? Mm And I was like, oh yeah, well, that's not going to be me. And when I got to that diagnosis of depression and I recognized that anxiety disorder, it was like a light bulb finally went off and said, I'm not gonna make it the next 25, 30 years. And being at the cancer center helped me because I had these individuals sitting in front of me and similar stories where they work extremely hard and like save everything until you get to retirement and then you start to live your life. But not everyone makes it to retirement. And so that just kind of hit me in the face. And when it did, I was like, I have to make these changes. And when I finally did all the healing and then did all the research, because the overarching question was, why do we experience what we experience within dentistry I thought I needed to start sharing this with the world. So started sharing my story, started coaching, and now it has become such a huge part of my life that I can't see go back going back to doing clinical dentistry full time because there's such a need with changing the dental culture. So I have a question would be, um, you've worked with a ton of dentists, you've lectured to a ton of them. Is, do, do you sense that many of them are high-functioning dysthymics? So dentists are those high achievers, high-functioning individuals, some overachievers, right? right? And that's an enormous amount of pressure to right. put on yourself. 
And so initially when I started lecturing, I wasn't lecturing on anything mental health related. I was lecturing on how to treat cancer patients from the general dentist point of view. But a massive interest of mine is improving patients' quality of life post-cancer therapy. And that kind of turned into how do we improve general dentist quality of life as well. And when it comes to that high achieving mentality, there is a significant amount of pressure that we put on ourselves that we then start to experience emotions like shame and blaming ourselves and frustration and all these negative emotions where if that's all we hear all the time, then that's what we start to believe of who we are. And so if we can change that, then we can change how we show up in our personal life as well as how we choose to show up in clinic as well. So the question is, you said before, there, there are a number of support systems, uh, peer support systems, not so easy because dentists don't like to acknowledge, they understand that what depression is about. I mean, nobody does, it's not just dentists, obviously. Professional support systems, uh, I don't know, like there really are no courses and curricula. The uh, Dental Association doesn't necessarily provide uh, psychobiosociologic, whatever, um, programs and courses to deal with the stress that's manifest. Was there anybody, like you did, sounds like you did this on your own. Was there any support system accessible to you at that time? So it's funny that you say that. I didn't feel comfortable coming forward within the dental community because I didn't know who I felt safe with having mm -hmm. conversations um the individuals that i did get help with were a psychiatrist and a psychologist and that support was huge and then probably out of selfish re reasons i started the alchemist dentist because i went looking for something couldn't find it and said well i'm going to create it then. Sure. Yeah. and so when i teach people about the different types of care that exist out there i go through all different all three types so we have the psychiatrist the psychologist and the counselor and then the coach and each one of them brings a different entity into your healing process for instance and i love my psych my psychiatrist immensely for saying this is he's like just you've been living at that heightened warrior catastrophizer, high achiever, perfectionist mentality for so long. He's like, so your baseline has now shifted. He's like, we need to readjust that baseline. And so initially I was so against going on any anti-depression medication or any anti-anxiety medication because I thought I was going to have to be on it forever. And he's like, Jessica, there's now a chemical imbalance because you've been living in your flight or fight response and your survival mode for so long. He's like, we need to recalibrate that. So he's like, why don't we start this for a period of time, see how you do. And then once we have established different routines and how to change your thoughts and the behaviors that then come with it, then we can start to evaluate, okay, maybe it's time to come off, but you have to give yourself a healing period as well. And so each one of those individuals play a part. So for instance, your psychiatrist is the individual who's prescribing uh, medications. A psychologist is someone who really starts to dig deep into maybe past stuff that was happening and how to work through some of that childhood trauma. And then a coach takes you from where you are right now to where you want to be setting goals and action steps, but also going through the life work that accompanies making those changes.
Have you found um, that there is a cultural difference among the dentists? I mean, people come from different backgrounds, different countries. Um, you know, Toronto has become a cultural mosaic with respect to this community, the population, and obviously the dentists as well. Uh, do you find that different cultures, different socio, uh, not socioeconomic, just different social and cultural um, groups have a different approach to this? Yeah. You know, one is more shame, feels more shame than the other, that sort of thing. Yeah. Some, some cultures still don't recognize mental health, um, the well-being and the illness around it. So then individuals who do need the help don't know where to get the help because they can't have those conversations or they don't feel safe to be able to have those conversations. I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, there was a post on uh, Facebook that I ended up um, commenting on because that was it. And it's and it came across as if, well, everyone's talking about mental health. So then now you have a mental health concern. Now, I come from an Italian immigrant family where I'm second generation and my mom's bipolar. And in the Italian culture and for what that time was, we just didn't acknowledge it. It wasn't like I knew something was going on. My immediate family, my dad, my mom, my brother, we all talked about it. But from a higher level out, it wasn't a thing. It wasn't something that we talked about until certain symptoms presented themselves and my mom developed psychosis and now family saw certain things and it was like, oh, okay, we need to have these conversations. We need to be aware of what is happening. So are there cultural differences and does that mean it's harder for other individuals to voice their concerns? Yeah, 100%. Are we navigating through them and does the internet allow us to access things so then you can also do a little bit of self-learning? Yeah, 100% as well. Let's assume that there were um, 10 people watching this right now. How many people would have shut this off and walked out of the room? Ooh, depends on who's on the opposite side and what they're feeling right now. And if they've had someone who's connected with a mental health concern. Because a lot of the people who are now sitting on these conversations, they're seeing it in their family members or their friends. And so they're now asking the questions of, how do I have this conversation with a family member so we can prevent it from going down that pathway? And that's what I love to see. So is there still a stigma associated with it? Yeah. There is definitely still a stigma and there are definitely times where I hear comments even when I share my story, but I know that getting this story out is important because I get those direct messages. I get those private messages who are individuals who are thanking me for talking about topics that we've essentially lifted up the rug and kind of thrown under for a very long time. And if we knew about those stats back when I was 14 and I'm 35, I'm going to be 35 in June. Those stats exist still to this day. And we're still hearing rumblings about individuals who are committing suicide and having struggles. And yet we're still having a hard time having these conversations. So if I can be that person, if I can be that vessel, along with a handful of other individuals that I hold near and dear to my heart who are also trying to make a different difference in dentistry, then we'll get there. We're about a decade behind medicine right now. So hopefully we'll start to catch up soon. 
Well, it's interesting because it's not just committing suicide. A lot of people have suicidal ideations. Uh, yes. there, there's the bigger problem. Um, I think I wanted to ask you, let me see if we can. Well, okay, this is a good question. If perfectionism is the driver and shame is riding shotgun, um, I don't know if everybody knows that's on the other side of the driver, okay? Uh, and fear is in the back seat. They're the back seat driver. Can you relate this to how dentists are dealing with their practice, their friends, their family, their drive, their uh, their uh, extreme sports? You know, the, there seems to be an interesting correlation. Extreme dentistry, extreme sports, right? There's that same mentality, that uh, perfectionistic. So in that context, perfectionistic driver, uh, shame riding shotgun and fear in the backseat. What are your thoughts? So we have to unpack what perfectionism is first to understand why shame sits there and why fear sits behind us. And when we unpack what perfectionism is, it's setting unrealistic expectations. It's judging our self-worth on the ability to achieve and then keep on achieving. So we have to keep meeting that demand. Now, the problem is, is that perfectionism comes with negative consequences such as physical ailments. So insomnia, anxiety, uh, GERD, stomach ulcers. And that's, that's the actual definition of perfectionism. Now, when we attach emotions to perfectionism as that driving force to keep pushing us, then we feel like we need to maintain that level of high achiever because we've linked not only our worth, but our identity to being a perfect dentist. And when the culture breeds it, because it starts right in dental school, right? Yeah. That we have that high achiever mentality, then unless we talk about the shame, unless we talk about the fears that exist and why we fear them, then we're always gonna be stuck in this perfectionism mindset. But a lot of the fear that comes around dentistry is fear of uncertainty, right? Of not having control over certain outcomes, fear of a mistake and what potentially happens afterwards, fear of perception of what others say about us and fear of judgment. And when we're putting ourselves out there, that fear lingers in the back of our head as that high achiever. And so anytime we think something is imperfect, then that's where shame starts to come in. And it turns back into the cycle of driving the perfectionism where we have to keep getting more perfect and more perfect over time because of the fear and because of the shame. But if we had open and honest conversations about our cases, because things, we, we have great intentions going in, but sometimes things happen. Right. And if we have more of those conversations, then we don't have to sit out on a branch all by ourselves, completely isolated, thinking that we have to figure this out on our own as well. So here, here's a thought. There, there are two, like the teeter-totter is positivist, negativist, right? Um, so I was talking about Brene Brown with you before. She has this great book, Atlas of the Heart. It talks about the difference between envy and jealousy. So I'll address that in a second. 
the other thing she always talks about is a call to courage, which is really what you're talking about, right? It takes guts to turn around and say, you know, I have a problem. I need to fix it um, and, and to cope with the shame of fixing the problem. But with respect to envy and jealousy, I'm, I'm curious your take on this. Social media can be dangerous. So, you know, aside from the QAnon conspiracy theories and whatnot, um, I think it's dangerous for dentists because you're seeing black and white. You're not seeing gray and you're not seeing 10 years down the road. And you're seeing cherry pick stuff as well, right? It's not, let's be honest. These are not the cases everybody does all the time. So with regard to envy and jealousy, it, you know, it starts out early. And, you know, you're competing with your classmates when you graduate as to who's grossing more, who's busier, that kind of nonsense. That, that's generational. I don't think that ever changed. Um, but with respect to the other problem today, um, just out of curiosity, I'm curious how you see this. They say that at most in Canada, for example, 10 to 15 percent are own intraoral scanners. Okay. And yet you're seeing digital flow, digital workflow thrown at you in every case on the internet. So there's envy, right? I need to get there. I need to do that. Jealousy apparently involves a third party, right? Somebody's, you know, withholding or whatever. Um, do you think that sharing cases, do you think sharing work like that on the internet is, uh, on social media, is beneficial or is it ultimately far more detrimental to the psyche, particularly of younger dentists? I love this topic and I'm so happy that you brought this up. So before it wasn't social media, it was at conferences, right? You saw the perfect cases and that lecturer speaker may or may not have shared the failures that would have happened as well. So you really only had it isolated or localized to conferences. Now with social media, you have it accessible at your fingertips 24 seven. So it's easier to compare yourself. If you think negatively, or if you're beating yourself up and you've chosen to follow a certain select individuals or groups on social media, then the algorithm is gonna keep pumping you those things. And if that's all you see and you're not in the greatest state of mind, you're gonna consistently compare yourself and want to compete because it's that high achiever mentality, right? right? And it has you stumbling down a rabbit hole. So with social media, you can curate what you see. And this is actually something that I work on with my clients. It's creating boundaries around social media. You can have two accounts if you want. You can have an account that is solely dedicated to dentistry and you follow all the dentist accounts, but then that gets shut off. Then you have your personal account, which maybe those are the friends and the family members that like, you connect with and you post about your vacations or whatever it is at that point in time. But you can use social media to your advantage if you know how to use it. Can it be negative? Yeah. Are you only seeing snapshots in time? Yeah. Is that beneficial to our mental health when the receiver, that's you looking at it, can't ask questions? No. Right? So now you have a snapshot in time, you've formed a judgment based on a few seconds, maybe you've looked through comments, and now you're wondering, why can't I do that? Right. What's wrong with me? When will I get there? And. So 
that's Go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. It just uh, what I was going to say was the, the problem is people don't understand that it's low hanging fruit, right. right? At best, it is low hanging fruit. You're not seeing complexities. So there is the danger with respect to envy and jealousy, mm. which is, gee, how come I can't do that, right? But the, the sense that it's cherry picked or low hanging fruit is the tragedy of social media, right? Mm. Everything is idealized. Everything is perfect. And the younger dentist has to suffer by it. Does that not fit the sort of the rhyme and reason, the optics, the calculus rather of what I was trying to say? Does that not fit the calculus of what's going on today? I think it's a part of it. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's the whole thing. Okay. I think you can play a part in it. However, there are so many other factors that are going on as well. You could have an individual who isn't on social media at all and yet hears things through the grapevine, shows up at society meetings and compares themselves to what's going on around them. And that comparison aspect of high achieving exists to have you either compete with someone or to have you place that individual in a role model perspective. But in dental school, it was compete, compete, compete. Even before getting into dental school, it was compete, compete. You gotta get in, you gotta do this. You have to have the highest grades, right? So our psyche has already been programmed at that point in time that we need to keep competing even once we graduate. And so we lose a bit of collaboration and we lose that non-judgmental conversation when we see someone's x-rays. And it is so easy. I mean, I used to do this too as a young dentist because we were hardwired early on being like, you need to be judge and jury when you're looking at x-rays. But what we also forget to take into account is there's a patient on that other side and we don't know what happened during that procedure and maybe how difficult that was. And so it can be really easy for us to jump to conclusions without us taking a step back and evaluating the entire story. So now if when we go back to social media and we look at it as being a part of it, that's an aspect of the high achiever comparing themselves, but it's not the only thing that's going on. What's interesting is there's a, um, if you think about practicing, there's a psychodynamic that goes on in a treatment room, right? So you're, you're, everything's triangulated, you know, in the sense that the patient relates to the, the, it's why there's teams, right? So the triangulation doesn't exist. And it's the one thing that you never hear people talk about, patient management in terms of the psychological aspect. That's never posted, right? Very dynamic part of what you do as a dentist is reducing fear, you know, causing self-care, self-compassion, telling the patient, how to be comfortable with what's going on. I don't mean hypnotherapy and drugs and whatnot, just developing a sense of ease in that environment. Given that they say 15% of people can't go to the dentist, they're absolutely terrified. So that's like saying divorce. The 50% of people get divorced, that means the, the half of the 50% are just hanging in by their fingernails kind of thing. And so for a lot of patients, it's the same kind of thing. So in the context of that, because it is the psychodynamics relate to the the people that are working together, especially in the, in the implant cases. Numbing, foreboding joy, negativity, cynicism, and shame is all part of that. Um, there, there are probably people that are looking at this, and I'm speculating, of course, I don't feel that way. 
But that's not representative of the vast majority of people out there. It, in, in, from my perspective, it's one of the reasons people are going into dental service organizations. They don't want the administrative concerns. They don't want to be responsible for the human dynamics, the culture creation, the leadership, the team control, the team management. It's just, I'm going to do my, I just want to do my dentistry. Leave me alone. Let me punch out a bunch of cases and I'm fine. Is, is, is that something that people come to you for? The obvious need to be empowered. You, you talk on women empowerment, which we can talk about in a second. But a lot of the people that see you, do they are they looking to you for how to empower themselves, how to empower their team, how to assert leadership in a very positive way? Is that what they seek you out for? Yeah. So I now not only work with dentists one on one, but I also work with clinics as a whole to help with effective communication, right. workplace culture and mental well-being. And when we, so something that you said there that stuck out for me is the individual who wants to go in and do dentistry and leave and that is it. I don't think that there's anything wrong with that, but what hurts my heart is the individual who thinks that they're only capable of doing that. Right. Because now they feel as if they can't be a good leader or they don't have the skills. And because of that perfectionist mindset, you think that, well, this is the only place that I can stay or should stay. And so when we start to talk about the empowerment component and why individuals come to me, there are two blatant things that people say when they come to me. First is I wanna be more happy. And the second is I wanna be less stressed. But when I ask them, can you define happiness to me? What would that look like? People don't have an answer. No. And then when I say, okay, well, what does being less stressed look like? They say, I want to be more happy. I'm like, okay, but we have to define what happiness is at that point in time. Does that include changing your schedule? Are you working too many days? Are you working the hours that you want to be working? Are you doing the procedures that you want to be doing or thinking you should do those procedures because everyone else around you is doing them, right? Are you scheduling breaks for yourself, right? Are you taking those vacations and not feeling guilty for taking vacations? Are you, if you are an owner as well, inputting those business meetings because those are just as important for running a team as it is to clinically see patients as well. So now we have to take a look at not just the profession and how do we change your clinic style and your, what I like to call your dental philosophy and making sure you're in alignment with that. It then takes a look at, okay, are you doing things in your life that you enjoy? And are you making time for that? Are you a priority? And when we start to ask those tough questions, because as a high achiever, as a perfectionist, it's just go, 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 right? You can go and check all those boxes, but checking those boxes aren't necessarily gonna make you happy. So if you then put your success and your happiness over the cognitive horizon, you never actually get there. Interesting. I, I, the, the, just before we move on from that, I don't know how crass or uh, inappropriate this may sound, but with regard to DSOs from the limited exposure, there's almost an infantilism associated with that. Students are graduating with massive debt. Uh, competition is rampant. Um, you know, you really have trouble opening a practice. Uh, you need to, you know, cover the debt. You want to get going with your life and you're accepting being controlled in a profession that we went into because you wanted to be autonomous. 
I can't imagine a dentist not going into a profession where having to be in finite control of everything they do doesn't see their vision for their future related to a level of autonomy and on a personal bias, just getting, you know, becoming, it's like, you know, the, the old folk songs, right? You know, working for the company store. I don't care how, you know, the wonderfulness of the company and they're leading this, and I'm not referring to anything in general. It just seems to me that you're gonna end up working for the country, for the company store, if you continue to do this. I know they're partner, partner practices and whatnot, but ultimately it's a venture capital funded entity. And it's happening in Europe now too. And bottom lines are bottom lines, wherever you happen to be. So it's interesting because this is where I like to see it from a different perspective where, again, for the individual who wants to go into do clinical dentistry and step away and they don't necessarily want to step into marketing and managing social media and all of that stuff, right? Because that's not one of the reasons why they chose dentistry. Right. Then, then that becomes a place for that individual or for someone who wants to work part-time or I know we've talked about this before too is for women in particular if you own and you're the sole owner and you decide to take a mat leave or a couple mat leaves finding someone to fill that space and stuff that might be an alternative option am I saying one way is better than the other way no I think that every individual needs to figure out how they want to practice dentistry what their dental philosophy is and then navigate from there who do you surround yourself with because you can surround yourself with the wrong people and then that makes you feel like crap right so, and that happens within clinic, as well as at, at conferences, within organized dentistry. Like, you really have to figure out, okay, what is the difference that I want to make within dentistry? And what does that look like? And then how do I go about finding these people? Because the same thing when I started The Alchemist Dentist, I thought I was the only one and I was out on a branch all by myself doing it out on my own. But what I realized is when I started to put feelers out there, there are my co-counterparts now, people who I work with who we refer internal as dental coaches now. And so you can find those people out there. It's just, it may be hard, but you have to look for it and they do exist. So I'm curious, time-limited therapy, I think perhaps, uh, you know, per, again, personal bias. People look at, uh, it's one thing to set up coping management strategies, right? That's you know, whatever it happens to be from mindfulness to yoga or whatever it is. But there is there a sense on the part of people that are coming to you that they're going to be in this forever, that they can't get out of this, that it's not truly time limited therapy, even if it's truncated. Is that the concern people have that once they're in, they're locked in? No, not with me anyway, and not with my coaching counterparts that we talk about, because we can give people the tools and you go out, you start to apply them. So you had mentioned mindfulness and yoga. I'm going to bring in bedtime routines, morning mm -hmm. routines, right? Healthy eating, exercise, um, taking those breaks, taking scheduled breaks. When you start to implement those changes and you start to create accountability there, then those changes now become those new habits. And when those new habits are in place, you then get to go off on your own and start to explore them. At times moving forward, 
Do you need to go in for a hygiene appointment for a recare? Yeah, of course. <laughs> Same thing, same thing holds true with your, same thing holds true with your mind as well. Right. So that initial stage, okay, so for instance, I don't work with clients in a, a for shorter than six months. My minimum is six months. Why? Because I did the shorter amounts. And what happened is I was doing a disservice to my clients because I was giving them all these tools, sending them out too soon. They were trying and then regressing right. and then coming back saying we gotta start from scratch. Right. So for me, I found six months is a great launching off point then for you now to go and apply everything that we just implemented through the good days and the bad days. Mm -hmm. And so I like to see people through those ups and downs for a period of time because now you know you have the capacity to also do it on your own. And then when you need those check-ins, you either go back to someone that you connected with. So I have clients who come back to me after a few months and say, hey, I just need to check in. Or if you've outgrown that coach, which happens as well, I've grown out my own coaches sure, as well, of course. right? You find the next person. Mm -hmm. You go to that next person to say, okay, where am I at? And will this person get me to where I wanna go? Anytime you are working through something, and let's say you've spent a couple of years working through this and you're in a really good spot right now, but then something triggers you. That means that you, it's not that you haven't healed, it's that something has come up again that you really didn't fully work through the first time. Okay. So it's not that you're starting from scratch again, it's that, okay, what do I need to process and embrace and then allow to pass? Interesting. So, okay. I don't know if you can, I guess they can, like with no green screen, it's not so easy, right? Okay. <laughs> so the shit nobody talks about yep. in life doesn't have to suck. Yeah. Talk among yourselves, right? right. <laughs> so I came up with the title because it was one of those things where that's what I felt like I was in. I was in the shit. Okay. and no one was talking about it. And so I was like, you know what? I'm gonna talk about it because sometimes when we feel like we're in the shit, life sucks. But life doesn't have to suck. And I think at times we feel as if we've dug ourselves this massive hole mm. where we feel like then we can't get out. And this darkness encompasses us, but Going back to that open mind and different perspectives. Darkness doesn't have to be scary. Darkness is also rest. It's night. Right. It's with stars, right? Four or five years ago, I wouldn't have been able to see darkness at all at that point in time in the way that I now see it as being restful, as not just being that frightening, scary place. And so if we can have those open conversations, which that's what I'm doing with the podcast is bringing individuals on to also share their experience. It's great to hear my story over and over again, but I mean, I'm one story. There are so many people out there who have experienced something similar, shared the same emotions, but in a different manner or at a different age or at different times in their clinic. And so if I can get those people who feel comfortable out there sharing their stories, then they're gonna to continue to connect with others as well. So then they know they aren't alone. I wasn't gonna ask you this question, but something you just said triggered it. 
Uh, we spoke briefly at the beginning about Effie Hobsha and women in dentistry. You know, 12 years into this, she now has an event going on this weekend that tremendous turnout, being supported. So again, back to women empowerment. Um, do men listen to you? Do they <laughs> seek you out? Do male yeah. dentists come to you and say, can they deal with their ego and their, you know, self-esteem or, you know, their macho and actually come to you for help? Yeah. So I would say my um, coaching practice is 80% women, 20% men. But the men who come to me are ready and willing and okay. open to make those changes. That is the difference. It doesn't matter if you're man or woman at that point in time. If your ego is in the way and you can't or you don't want to or are not ready to take those next steps, then it doesn't matter who you are at that point in time. You have to be ready and willing and know that this is going to take time. It's going to be a process and the changes are going to hurt, but they're also going to come with amazingness that you're going to step into and be so proud of as well. There's an element of power that comes in afterwards that you didn't even realize you were able to step into that potential. Right. I'm curious, um, in the demographics of the people you see, uh, young and old, what's the breakdown? Both. Both. I've got, I've, got a, I've got a spectrum right now, which is fantastic because it means then that it's not just heavily one-sided. It is very much apparent across all aspects, across all transitions within dentistry. So you don't have to have just graduated and experienced this. You may be 25, 30 years into your career recognizing that I don't want to keep living like this. So what's the road from being an imposter to being somebody who's empowered? What, what's, the, what's the journey? So my journey is breaking down three specific components. It's imposter syndrome, perfectionism, and burnout. And when you can understand all three elements and how they start to play a role in your life, you can then start to understand and implement those changes. And that comes with exercises or things I like to call brain training exercises that allow you to navigate the ins and outs of what you're experiencing within dentistry. I'm curious, you basically have a master's in social work. I mean, <laughs> I appreciate I've done a, I, I considered going back to school at one point and then I was just like, I, I you don't I, need it. You know, I, why, I what for? Research. I do, I do my, I do enough of my own research. I connect with the end of like with the programs and stuff. So I've, I've collected it, I've created, and now it's, okay, let's get this information out to people. What's intriguing in all of this is, how, how difficult was it for you to go from a negative position to a positive position? That growth, that ladder, what was that ladder like for you? Um, I like to think of it as a staircase <laughs> instead of a ladder. We'll tip the ladder. Yeah, <laughs> we can tip the ladder. And the reason why I think of it as a, as a staircase is let's say the bottom is negativity and the top is positivity. And I want to go back to that in a second because I believe that there's toxic positivity that we need to clarify. And getting out of that negativity took time. And for me, took years to get out of. And what I recognized is it wasn't that I was taking a step 
each time towards positivity, staying on a step, creating consistency was just as important as taking that next step up. And so if I stayed on a step and I gave myself the permission and built that self-compassion saying, man, I'm here a little bit longer than I want to, I recognized it was a reason why I was here a little bit longer than I wanted to. I had programmed my brain a certain way. So a few years ago, when I started to do the reprogramming and changing my thoughts and substituting my words, that had spent years. I'd spent years programming myself. So to create that new neural network, which we know is possible through neuroplasticity, is going to take some time. And as long as you give yourself that self-compassion, then you'll be able to walk up that staircase. Okay, so now that we're throwing big words around, <clears throat> because that's basically what I'm doing right now, off the books. Um, in order to develop cognitive acuity, you said something very intriguing. How do you give yourself permission? So that takes time and you actively have to give yourself permission. And so sometimes that means it comes from a coach first. So that is something that I say to my clients where I say, I'm giving you permission. I want you to repeat that back to me now. So then now we're actively taking part in saying, I give myself permission to take a break. I give myself permission to be good. I give myself permission to be more than enough, right? And you have to work with your words and when you start to alter your words, you need to use words that you believe in, right? And so going from that negative mindset to a positive or neutral mindset takes playing with those words and figuring out what works for you. Case in point is, let's say um, you don't have the greatest sleep, okay? And so you wake up the next morning, you're like, oh, I hope today goes well. I hope I have a good day. That puts an enormous amount of pressure and expectation around the day. If something slightly goes off, it's going to ruin your entire day. So what if you change that vocabulary? You wake up in the morning, you didn't have the greatest sleep. Okay, so you say, I'm curious how today will unfold. You already know you might be a little slower. You might have a little bit of brain fog. Maybe you need to lean on your team members a little bit more. But by adding that element of curiosity it removes the pressure and the expectations of the demands of what you expect that day or how you expect it to unfold so i'm going to ask you a question this, this always reminds me of you know and you're italian so i'll be very careful how i say it you know sort of like they do, they do this right you know um, yeah. so fomo right um how much does fomo interplay with what you're talking about um I think it had, you know what? It depends on who you surround yourself okay. uh, with. Because if you're in alignment with the people that you're around, and let's say you come down with a cold or whatever, and you miss out on something, it's going back and recognizing, okay, I'm going to be able to have another experience with these individuals. But going back again, like you said, where it's that high achiever mentality that if I don't set that next goal, if I don't achieve that next thing, then I will have FOMO and I am gonna miss out on everything and be behind, right? And so it really comes down to understanding again, what you want, not just your basic needs, but what you want out of dentistry, what you want out of life. 
And we can't ask ourselves those questions if we're just doing and doing and doing all the time. So, and that was my problem is when I was working six, seven days a week at that time, I didn't give myself the opportunity to sit with my thoughts. I always felt I had to have a distraction on because anytime I was with my thoughts, they were so negative and intrusive and mean and hurtful. And so I didn't want to be with myself. And so I put everything imaginable onto my plate and thinking that by checking all those boxes, it would get better. I would feel better, but that's not what helps. So yes. Okay. I was making sure I wasn't having any FOMO, but I still felt it. Right. So, um, all right. So let's see, there's a, as it relates to that, before we finish up with burnout, um, can you demonstrate kindness to yourself, self-care, self-efficacy, compassion, if you're feeling vulnerable? Is that possible? Is there, does one short circuit the other? Does one series of kindness consideration, is vulner, feeling vulnerable, does that put you in a bad position? On the other hand, to make yourself feel better about yourself or to calm yourself down? When we become vulnerable, we listen to what we're actually trying to say to ourselves okay. and what those needs and wants are and something's missing. And when we become vulnerable, we can ask ourselves those hard questions. So go, going back to definition of happiness, I don't expect my clients that I work with to come up with a definition of happiness in 24 hours, right? You've you, right. That, that takes time trying to navigate. And as you, as a human being throughout your life, you're going to explore different interests and you're going to navigate different challenges in your life. And when you're doing that, you have to give yourself the kindness to be able to figure out and be vulnerable and to understand and dive into those hard, challenging questions. So I think being vulnerable isn't a bad thing. Can you be vulnerable to the wrong people? Yeah, hundred percent. I've, sh I've shot myself in the foot before with that too. And, and it hurts and it hurts bad. And to try to then open up again, takes time and you put up that block. But is it possible and is it worth it to not only be vulnerable with yourself, but to others? Yeah, it is. How do you deal with judgmental people? Um, I don't. <laughs> You're out of here. Goodbye. No, it's just I choose. I choose to. So Adam Grant talks. Adam Grant is an organizational psychologist who talks about debates and arguments and how to be vulnerable in those conversations as well. And how to approach disagreements with kindness and courtesy and gentleness. Okay. So you can have a debate with someone without attacking them personally or emotionally. Okay. And if someone who is judgmental comes in and tries to pick me apart, then that is not someone then I want to be vulnerable with. That is not someone that I want to share or try to communicate effectively. That is someone who I've tried, but I've recognized they're not open-minded. They're going to shut me down. So in that sense, I'm going to end the conversation. It's not that I'm going to get angry at the situation or belittle them or put them down. It's just, 
there's no more reason for me to try to educate further at that moment in time. Will there be an opening maybe later on? Yeah. But at that moment in time, that's when I have to also then uh, take note and take a step back. Okay. Interesting. Well, yeah, I, maybe I phrased it wrong. It's sort of like people who are judgmental are also confrontational in their own way, right? There's a, there's a symbiosis. Mm-hmm. So we're going to finish up in a bit. I want to know if I'm burnt out, you know, I'm tired. Um, you know, I don't have enthusiasm. I, you know, I look at what I'm doing. I'm dissatisfied. Um, you know, my ability to discern reality is inappropriate. So if I've come to you and I say, you know, I think I'm burnt out. I don't know, you know, so I just low energy, this, that, and the other. Which, how do you diagnose somebody's burnout? So I'm not diagnosing someone who's burnt out. Um, I will leave that to a psychiatrist or a psychologist. However, I do take them through what the different components of burnout are so we can really start to navigate and make changes within those components. So one of them being exhaustion, both emotional and physical. Then there's cynicism or negativity toward the profession or colleagues or patients. And then there's this lack of confidence or this feeling of you're not being able to accomplish things. And so it's decreased productivity. And I'm not talking about production. It's not that you're not making your numbers. It's it's hard to get going and keep going in the morning. It's hard to get out of bed. It's when you wake up already wishing that you want to go to bed. So I navigate through, I ask all my questions. I determine at that point in time. And then I ask the individual as well, where do you think you are among this? And if that's the case, then we start to work towards, okay, how do we now start to make those changes? What is no longer working? And what changes do we need to make so we get you to that point? And that takes time. And this is where I want to swing back around to the positivity comment. So toxic positivity and informed optimism are two different things. The example that I like to use is, let's say it's rainy outside, okay? Toxic positivity is trying to convince you that, no, it's sunny outside, it's sunny outside, you're fine, it's sunny outside, okay? Informed optimism is saying, yeah, it's raining today, but the sun will shine again. Okay. There's a huge difference there. And so when we recognize that there's going to be good days, there's going to be bad days, not everything can be rainbow and sunshine and unicorns all the time. Right. And when we recognize that we can then embrace process emotions, understand what our needs and our wants are, allow ourselves to step into that, create boundaries, both physical and psychological boundaries. And then from there, we get to make ourselves a priority. Are you saying that there are no such things as unicorns? Like, don't <laughs> don't do that to me, please. Don't do. I'm convinced that you I mean, don't I, say I, that. There are unicorns. <laughs> okay. So the big question at the well, two questions actually, but the one that probably is most relevant now: COVID. Mm-hmm. Did we learn anything because of COVID? Or did we simply wish ourselves, oh, you know, it's going to be over. I can go back and see my buddies. I can travel. We can go to conferences. I can see the same people I've seen for 30 years. Did we learn anything? Did we appreciate our families more? Did we slow down? What is your take on 
people's sense of COVID. I mean, it's even Fauci said today, we're not in a pandemic state anymore. Fantastic. I'm sure Rand Paul went crazy and decided to destroy him in the Senate. However, that being said, um, are we better because of COVID? Are we different because of COVID? Are we wiser because of COVID? I think we're different. I mean, we see it across the dental profession. I think that certain things that were rumbling have made headway in dentistry with us having to change how we see dentistry or how we practice dentistry. When it comes to personal on the changes that we make, as that high achiever, it is really easy to slip back into old ways. Right. And so the person who had an eye-opening experience and recognized that they needed to maintain those changes will keep readjusting and will keep noticing, okay, this is working. This is what I need to change. For the individuals who passed through COVID, not saying that it wasn't eye-opening either, but that they wanted to get back to what things were before, may have had that experience initially where they said, yeah, you know what, I've had this reflection time and stuff. But being humans and habits being very much ingrained in us, mm -hmm. it's really easy to slip back into old ways. And so I think we'll, I think, we'll see people who have made changes and then we'll we'll see people going back to what they were doing before and then at that point saying it's either working or it's not working or i can't believe this is happening or whatever it is but i don't think it's a hundred percent one way or a hundred percent another way what about rebound phenomena where people say oh i'm back let's go crazy right you know mm -hmm. suddenly i want to show i've been a restaurant i this i'm here there like, yeah. is there a rebound potential phenomenon? Of course, especially for the individuals who've been isolated for so long and have extroverted uh, personalities. At that point in time, they've been missing out on people for so long. So it is, so you go completely the opposite direction being like, okay, I have to go and do everything now, right? Um, there's also an element of are the restrictions gonna get put back on? And if so, I need to experience everything right now before restrictions go back on. So people have that scarcity mindset of, okay, but I don't know. So I might as well live right now. And that's really hard when you're trying to navigate, especially if you're heading towards burnout or you're expending or overextending your energy and your time trying to make up for that. And then you get, overtly exhausted and you could head, head down that burnout path. Interesting. So a couple of, well, last thing really, uh, you moved from Toronto, which is the center of the earth, right? Universe, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, really, it's, you know, it is the center of the universe, uh, depending on who you are. And you moved to Vancouver Island, which is idyllic. Um, it is, uh, I don't know if it has a tax position like those islands in the, in the English Channel, like the islands of Guernsey and all those people. Was that the reason for going out there? Um, it's unique. It's an island, which I thought was interesting. Um, and we didn't talk about it at the beginning. You move from this dense cosmopolitan, um, you know, just booming city, which is kind of quasi Manhattan, to an island. 
right? In and of it, like conceptually, that speaks to something too, right? You went from a city where if you look up, you can't see a star in the night sky 30, 364 days a year to being on Vancouver Island, where I bet you look up at the sky, you see a whole lot of constellations. So was this a conscious move or was it just like you'd had enough and you wanted to move as far away in Canada as you can go so you could still get quality health care? Or, or what was the deal? What was, why, why the relocation far away? So when COVID happened, it made a lot of us rethink. And at that point in time, I had already been coaching and I recognized that if a change in lifestyle was what I was promoting and helping individuals get there that I needed to reevaluate my own life. And what I recognized as that high achiever that it is very easy for me to consistently work like all the time. Mm -hmm. And what I noticed is when my environment is slower, then I get to make myself a priority and I get to slow down. And so Toronto, it's so fast paced and I moved faster than Toronto. And so now on the island, I still get to be the high achiever and set my pace. But now I have this external stimuli that reminds me, you need to also take care of yourself and you need to take a break. So it slows me down as well. You can go to Nanaimo and go fishing every weekend. So there's all kinds of things. If I wanted to, yeah. That's salmon, who knows? Jess, thank you for this. it, it's, I mean, it's a longer interview, but I hope people watch it. You are a veritable font of knowledge. And it goes beyond that. It's uh, like you say, you didn't, you don't have a graduate degree. You don't have an MSW, but you sure as hell should. And um, it's just remarkable. I, I admire what you've done. I think to be open about admitting the past the way you are, not something most people will do, right? They either create a veneer or a patina of, gee, aren't I great or aren't I happy? And that's not being diminished. That's not diminishing anybody or being negative. Our society leads us into needing to be illusory on some level, right? It's just the nature of the way we live today. Um, you know, we're not grounded in, in you know, we're, we're really, we're not grounded. We're not living on, what are the, what's the Greek one? Gaia, you know, we're not centered on the earth. But thank you for helping a lot of people get there if they watch and listen, and I hope they do, because uh, aside from being incredibly informative, you're a delight, and what a positive, you have, you have if people take advantage of you and take advantage of your services, and God willing, some dental association says, can you help build support systems for us, for our students, for our you know young, whatever. Um, it's an incredibly worthy thing to do. So thank you for taking the time. Uh, I realize it's, what are you? You're quarter to six? Mm-hmm. So, all good. I'm ready for bed. It's a quarter to <laughs> What happens when you get old, right? You go to bed by nine o'clock, right? Um, in any case, Jess, thank you so much for doing this. I am really appreciative. And I hope everybody watches this because this is not to be missed. So, if you didn't know a lot about me, now you do. It has been an incredible journey thus far, and I so look forward to what is coming next. With that said, I wanted to share some exciting news. I recently finished my book, and the launch will be November 2022. I still can't believe I wrote a book, like an actual book. And so, 
As things change in life, so does this podcast. I'm currently in the middle of rebranding during the summer of 2022, and this will be the official last episode of The Dark Side of Dentistry, the shit no one talks about. 